You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. Um, wow. Uh, I'm one of the young adult ministers here. My name is Tamarcus Raglan. If we have not uh, met, it's so good that we to see you all. I'm glad that you're here. If you're new here, uh, welcome to Citizens Church. We hope that uh, you just received hospitality the moment you've walked in the doors and that uh, you just get to, get to continue to look to Jesus with us. If you're watching online, likewise, we're so glad that you're with us. I'm going to preach in just a moment, I promise. Students. Um, uh, if you were here early enough to hear them sing as we open service, uh, man, y'all brought, literally brought me to tears. Um, and I just want to encourage you um, as you come back from camp. And I know the Lord has done amazing things uh, through your leaders and just through his spirit um, that the Bible doesn't say anything about a camp high that comes and goes away. But it has a lot to say about a Holy Spirit who walks with you and never leaves you. Uh, what you gleaned and what you gained this weekend does not have to go away. Um, and we are so glad that you're here. Um, I know we don't get to do this every weekend, but I'm here for that energy every week. So just... Just keep bringing it. Uh, now, scriptures. Um, last week, Jamin blessed us uh, with a reminder that our identity is rooted ultimately in who God says that we are, right? That we are not um, who we say that we are. We're not who the world around us says that we are. But ultimately, in Christ, we have been given an identity from above, right? One that is received and not achieved. And uh, if you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, we've been in this ongoing series considering what it means to be united with Christ. What is union with Christ, right? What does being in Christ mean and what are the, the implications of that? And this morning, I want to continue within that series and follow up our conversation on identity from last week and consider what does it look like to live out of that identity, um, to receive that identity from God, and then to allow our lives to be empowered and motivated by the identity that we've received from him. And so uh, this morning, we're going to look to Colossians 3, as we just read, to help us through that. Paul pins his letter to the Colossian church, and one of his core aims was to address this um, kind of what seems to be a subtle uh, error that was infiltrating the church. And it sounds something like, uh, hey, Jesus is great, but you also need this if you want to make it in the household of God, right? That there was this kind of added um, um, ingredient, right? This theological casserole, if you will. If you are a fan of casserole, I apologize if that's offensive, right? But theologically, we don't need casseroles, right? We want the, we want the pure thing. And so uh, they had this, this theological casserole going on and Paul is saying, hey, there is, there is no Jesus and, it's just Jesus. And so uh, he wanted to carve out and uh, uh, persuade them away from this kind of syncretism. And he points to particularly what's going on in Colossians 2.8. He says uh, what was filling in the blank for the Colossians was uh, empty philosophies and deceit based on human traditions rather than Christ. And see, those added elements, what it actually did in the life of the believers and what it could do to, to us if we're not careful is it atrophies our confidence in what Christ has already secured for us. 
And we too are, are vulnerable to similar kinds of uh, persuasion and error if we are not careful. And specifically when we think about our identity in Christ, uh, one of the, the strangest errors that could, that could come in and infiltrate even the church from the culture outside of us is this idea of, uh, and this impetus of living out your true self, right? Your authentic self. And while there's a, uh, a semblance of that that seems to resonate with truth, like all good lies do, um, in, the, in the core of it is a, is a lie that is, that is sinister. And so from the world's perspective, right, if you are uh, given this new identity in Christ, you've been uh, called a son or a daughter and you've received Christ's righteousness, um, but then you have these warring, uh, in, uh, these warring passions and desires inside of you, uh, which one is actually the true you? Which one do you actually need to uphold? And if you let the world tell it, uh, you get to decide. And nine times out of ten, what they would persuade you to decide is what's the you that comes most natural? What's the you that you feel deep inside when you look inside of yourself? And the problem is that when the things that are deep inside of yourself comes into collision with the things that Christ has called you to um, and, and named you as, then we have a problem. And so how do we, how do we deal with that kind of error? Uh, one of the commentators described this uh, error and its, uh, its sinisterness in this way. He says, the most dangerous heresies the church is called on to combat from time to time are not those which openly and blatantly assail the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather those which subtly detract from his dignity while giving the appearance of honoring him. There's a Japanese film called Kagimusha that I had to watch when I was in uh, school. Uh, I believe I pronounced that as closely as I could. Uh, the word literally means shadow warrior, right? It was a term used to describe a political uh, decoy. And in the film, the king of this particular clan of interests dies, right? Right at the verge of them kind of uh, being almost in battle with some surrounding tribes. And they were trying to secure their strength, you know, before their enemies. They didn't want them to appear weak. So they knew they needed somebody who could stand in the king's side so that there would be this strength, not only for them, but it also would provide a sense of strength to those around them. And so they find a, a doppelganger who looks like the king to be this uh, political decoy. Problem is, the guy that looks like the king is far from kingly. In fact, he was a criminal. He was a thief, and he was on his way to capital punishment and was snatched from it so that he could be this political decoy. And so while he was not the king, the people dressed him like the king. Um, and while he did not typically act like a king, they taught him the mannerisms of the king, how to stand like the king would, how to sit like the king would, how to uh, conduct himself in a you know, war room meeting like the king would. And all throughout the film, there's these snippets of him kind of doing it well. And it's like right at the moment where everyone turns their head, he kind of slips into his you know, criminal, silly foolishness, right? And, and the whole time, everyone is hoping, like, will he be able to hold it together long enough so we could avoid war, that people would believe that he's the king, even though deep inside, really, he's a criminal and a thief? And isn't this often how we can think of our life in Christ, right? That we can think of ourselves as just 
criminals in king's clothes, right? Trying to pretend to be the king long enough and, and well enough so that nobody around us actually sees all of our foolish tendencies. And it's, you know, we say things to ourselves like, I know that I've received a new identity. I know that I've been clothed by the king, but I'm just a criminal in the king's clothes. And my aim is just to, to act and to pretend well enough and long enough so that nobody finds me out. God might say that I'm righteous in him, but I know the real me. Do you hear the lie? And if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you have surely felt this distance between who God says you are and what your life looks like. And you read scriptures and you hear about the newness of life that comes with following Jesus and the reality seems to be so far from that. So what do we make of this dissonance? Like I said earlier, the world offers an answer, and it really goes in one of two ways. The first is we are led to believe that what's most true about us is all of the wrong we've done, right? And it sounds like my sin defines me. And if my sin defines me, that means God's against me because he hates sin. Or it can sound like uh, we could be led to believe that all of the wrong we did actually isn't wrong. It's not really a moral thing. It's, it's just who we are, Right? And so it, instead, we, we hear an internal voice that says, uh, my sin may define me, but, but God's fine with that because he loves me and he's not interested in changing anything about me. And with those two kinds of categories hovering around the truth, right, how do we live out of our identity in Christ in a way that is not inauthentic? Well, let's look to Colossians 3, 1 to 11 to give us Help. I know we just read it, but I'm going to read the whole thing again because God's word is good like that. Amen. Colossians 3, 1 through 11 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's the reading of God's word. First point this morning. It's our lie that we all have to reject in Christ. And the lie is that you are your sin. Hear me, if you have been united with Christ, brothers and sisters, you are not your sin. That is not what primarily defines you. Now, our passage begins with the word so, which is all you scholarly uh, saints know, means everything we just read is predicated on a previous thought that Paul was uh, addressing. And so here's where Paul was coming from at the end of Colossians chapter 2. He said, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. 
All these regulations refer uh, to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have the reputation uh, of wisdom for promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Hear me then. Essentially, what Paul is saying and telling us is that at the bottom of all of our best attempts at justifying ourselves before God is an utter and complete lack of power. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by to justify ourselves before God? I mean, how is it that any human being could stand before the true and living God, holy as he is, as we just sang, whose presence requires perfect holiness and righteousness? How could we do it, right? When, not if, but when he finds fault in us, how will we account for it in a way that doesn't end in our destruction? Well, here Paul says the answer is not by simply doing good stuff. That is to hide in a place that doesn't adequately cover the sins uh, that are with us. And that'll ultimately leave us insecure before God, right? And we feel that often. That's why we would ask questions like, am I enough? Have I done enough? Right, and that circles in our brain time and time again. Or the cultural mantra that reinforces the narrative that our most true self is our natural man, right? We would say, oh, well, that's just the way that I am. And God accepts me as I am and has no interest in changing me. Right? There's a road of self-justification that is paved with tears from a place of defeat. And there's also one that is paved with confidence from a place of pride. And either way, the answer is the same. Justification isn't about you being enough. Paul tells us elsewhere in Colossians 2.16, he says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. If you have faith in Christ, the old you, not just meaning your past life, but the behaviors, thoughts, and motives that belong to it even now are dead. They are not what's most true about you. And if you have not yet confessed faith in Christ, it is important that you know that your sin doesn't have to be what's most important about you either. Sin can be a big term in Christianity, but suffice it to say today what you need to know is that sin, rather than being your true self, is actually a distortion of your true self. Sin makes us out to be something that God never created us to be. And praise be to God, he provides a remedy for us to be ridden of it. You see, sin isn't a necessary, essential property of being human. It's actually an accidental property of humanity. All that means is we weren't created that way. It's with us for a time. And because of what Christ has accomplished, one day it'll be no more. It is finite. And so the question is, how do we distance ourselves from it? Look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following anger, wrath, malice, slander and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. 
See, here's what's revealed about our sin, right, and how it clings to us. At its core, um, it's ultimately idolatry. It is some form of of self-worship and believing that we can provide a suitable covering for ourselves apart from Christ. Every vice listed here has within it, packed within itself, a, a way of seeking things that can only be found in Christ on our own and in our own strength. Do you want some semblance of control in your life? Well, maybe you could, you know, turn to to lust or some sort of evil desire to to give you the feel of that. Maybe you want to feel more secure and powerful. You might be given to greed or to anger. And it would take a whole nother sermon to exhaust all of the ways that this list can find itself worked out in our life because there's all sorts of mixed motivations and temptations that leads us um, to each one of them. But the result is the same every single time. All of them overpromise and underdeliver. They aren't capable of actually securing for us the things that only can be secured in Christ. And so Paul's exhortation is put those things away, put them to death. He says, do not lie to one another since you have been put off the old self and its practices and you have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Why would you tell us to put off something and put on something if we've already put off and put on something. See, he uses this like present, do this, but then he also goes back and he says, it's already been done. How could that be? Well, this is one of those complex but striking realities of our faith. And it's why Paul began in our passage telling us to set our minds on the things above because it's, it's the kinds of truth that come from the upside down kingdom. And tucked in it is our truth to embrace this morning. First, let us read Colossians 3, 1 through 4 again. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, the truth to embrace is you are hidden in Christ. You are hidden in Christ. Mind blown? Right? Maybe not, but it should, right? Uh, If the Bible is true, and it is, friends, then part of what it means to be a Christian and to live out of this true identity that we have in Christ is to grow deeper and deeper in the knowledge of this reality for the rest of our lives. Right? It is a basic truth in the tenets of our faith, but it is manifold in its implications. And while it may not blow your mind all at once, it ought to change you and it will change you over the length of time in your life if you continue to press towards it. You see, the reason Paul speaks of putting off and putting on in the past tense and then again in the present ongoing sense is because he's talking about first a a moment or an instance of true justification, the kind of putting off and putting on that only God can do. And then the ongoing process of being sanctified, being made holy and changed by the truth of the gospel. And this too is the work of God in us by the power of the spirit and we get to partake in it and we are empowered and, and it is brought about by the same means, God's love and God's grace. As Timothy Keller said it, the same thing that got you in the kingdom is the same thing that works the kingdom into you. 
Remember, earlier I mentioned how we often can feel as though we're just criminals in the king's clothes. And friends, there's a, there's a part of that that's true. And it's only a problem if you haven't first received the kind of putting off and putting on that God offers. Give you an example, right? Uh, what's the difference between somebody impersonating a federal officer and a subpar federal officer? One's illegal and one's not, right? Uh, if you are impersonating a federal officer, that is against the law. Now, the subpar federal agent, right, is as subpar as they may be. They have an opportunity to grow and to become better at it. They can get training. They can be taught. Um, all the while, they wear the badge, rightfully so, because they've received it from the appropriate powers, right? But the guy who's impersonating a federal agent as great as he might be as impersonating, as good as he might be, right, as shiny as his badge might be, the reality is he wears it wrongly because he did not receive it from the appropriate powers. And while he might fool all of the world, those with the right power and who know what the true badge looks like, when they see him, he'll be found out immediately. You see, the problem with our own efforts apart from Christ. And what Paul refers to in Romans is right, our works done in righteousness is that while we may pile on good works and good works and, and try in our own self to, to posture up this kind of godliness, we have not received the kind of righteousness that comes from Christ from the appropriate powers. And that is the only thing that justifies. All of those good works are but another kind of false hiding that won't justify us before God. But... For those of us whose lives are hidden in Christ, as subpar as we may feel, it is with the knowledge of the depths of our depravity that the scripture says that in that moment, in that place, God extends his great love towards us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us on our behalf. When we were busy hiding in fig leaves that couldn't actually cover us and would never actually save us, the king gave us his robe. But not only did he put his righteousness on us, no, he took our criminal's clothes and he shrouded himself in them and took our suffering and our sentence in exchange. We get to wear the royal robe and enjoy its privileges. He put on our criminal's clothes and he died on the cross in our place. As the scriptures say it, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, friends, the you that you're afraid for anyone to know, maybe the you that you're afraid to reckon with yourself, God knows and he became on your behalf. He put that to death on the cross. And the you that you could never succeed in becoming on your own has been given to you in Christ. This is the great exchange of the gospel. Christ demands that you give him your life. You must die to yourself. You must be born again, as he told Nicodemus. It will cost you everything. And what you receive in exchange is life and life more abundantly, the righteousness of Christ himself. In Christ, we stand justified before God, criminals in king's clothes, because our king was willing to shroud himself in our filthy rags. That is what is most true about you in Christ. The world will tell you that you're the summation of the things that you do or the things that have been done to you. But the scripture says who you really are in him 
is something that you could never possibly imagine on this side of eternity. This is why we have to constantly set our mind on the things above and praise be to God that his word is a constant and close reminder of those things. First John 3, 2 says, dear friends, we are God's children now, right now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolute, incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And in our passage today, Colossians 3, 3 through 4, You have died and your life is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, there is a day coming when you will stand face to face with your creator. And in an instant, you will be changed into something that you could not imagine. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says to enter into heaven is is to succeed at becoming human more than you ever could on earth. And here's the thing, in a real way, that you that is to come is present now. It's another already but not yet reality. So Paul says, seek what is above. Set your minds on things above. If you want to know who you really are, look to Jesus. Look up where he is. The idea is that your values and your worldview and your desires would continue to align themselves and be conformed to Christ and his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a prayer to pray for the world around you, but it's a prayer to pray for your own heart. We need God to be working his kingdom in our own hearts. And here's the thing. He's doing that very thing as you continue to live in Christ. Look at verse 10 again. He says, You are being renewed in the knowledge of your creator. God in Christ, through the power of the indwelling spirit, is renewing his image in you. He is making you who you are always truly meant to be in relationship to him. Now, I know at this point, maybe you've been thinking this already, right? We're 25 minutes in and you're like, I thought we were going to talk about how to live out of this new identity. And it sounds like we're still talking about identity. Well, you're right, and you're right. Uh, We have been doing both, and here's why, right? The beginning of living rightly is a deep, robust conviction that Christ has freed you to live rightly, that you right now in Christ are free to walk away from your sins and to live in the life that was always meant for you, that has been given to you in Christ. And this leads us to our step to take. Become who you are. Become who you are, not do all of the things so that you can truly prove to yourself who you are. God has declared who you are. Receive that and now become who you are always meant to be. Look at verses 10 through 11 with me again. He says, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all And in all, this is the new way to live that has been made available to us in Christ. 
with the old you buried with Christ and the new you alive and hidden with him in heaven, having already been justified before God, you are now free. Paul said it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Free to do what? Free to live not for acceptance and approval because of all of the awesome things that you've done, but free to live out of a place of acceptance and approval because of the awesome things that Christ has done on your behalf. Now, here's the question that inevitably comes up at maybe a point like this. Well, if everything is already accomplished, if it's, if it's that sealed already by everything Christ has done, what is the motivation to continue in obedience? Well, Paul is glad you asked because that means that you understand what's happening in the gospel. And he responds in Romans 6 accordingly. He says, what then should we do? Go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. How could we who have died to sin still live in it? Maybe you're thinking right now or maybe you've been thinking all the while, right? Like this, this just feels too soft. Like I feel like we're not like this. Surely there has to be something else that I can like add. Like he like I can assist in some way in this. Right. And the truth of the matter is you are reckoning with the confounding and beautiful radical truth of the gospel that actually has power enough to transform you, not adhering to the law. And see, what's revealed in all of this is not only is our salvation begun through faith, but what actually helps us grow in holiness is also requires faith. So here's, here's the, the, the question that we have to reckon with, right, with one another. Do we really believe that continuing to look to Jesus and rehearsing the gospel to ourselves and to one another over and over again has power enough to change us? Because the scriptures would say it does. And here's the thing that's behind, right, the question of, of well, what's the motivation of, of obedience, right? What it reveals is that what deep in our hearts, what has actually been motivating us to obedience was fear, right? Uh, if, well, if, if I don't do something, if I'm not good enough, then God is going to be angry and he's going to reject me. And this way of thinking is part of what we've died to, right? We've, we've tried that and it, and it didn't work. And praise be to God, he brought us into his household through the power of the gospel. And we learned that the true motivation of obedience is love, right? It is God's kindness that is, draws us to repentance. And so rather we can say, I'm not good enough, but Christ is. And my life is hidden in him so I can turn away from those things that I've died to and I can move forward with confidence. As the writer of Hebrew would say, I can approach the throne of grace with confidence, receive forgiveness and continue to become who I've always been meant to be. You see how the gospel offers a better answer than the world does. Here I don't have to be hamstrung by my sin, nor do I have to act as if God is just okay with it. Instead, because I'm hidden in Christ, and he has already taken the penalty for my sin, and he has given me this new identity in him, I can confess my sin without fear, repent, right? Turn away from those dead works and continue to follow in Christ and grow in holiness. It rejects both of the former lies and it allows me to both reckon with my sin, but yet still live in the newness of life that I was called to. It's the double cure that we just sung about that saves us from wrath and makes us pure at the same time. Maybe a, I want to use a biblical image to help us maybe picture this a little bit better. Um, 
If you're not familiar with the story of the prodigal son, quick overview, right? Young man living in his father's house demands his inheritance immediately. His father gives it to him and he leaves and goes to a faraway land. And the Bible says that he squanders it on senseless living. And while he was there, a famine came and he had nowhere to turn. And somehow he ends up eating in a pig, eating pig slop with pigs. And at some point, like awakens and is like, man, what am I doing? Like even the slaves at my father's house eat better than I do. And so he works up this scheme to like, I'm going to go home and I'll like talk to dad. Maybe he'll just let me come back as a slave. I know I'm not going to be, you know, son like I used to be, but maybe I could just like work in the fields or something. And as soon as he got within eyes reach of the father, the father sprints out to him and embraces him and throws his robe over him. And he starts trying to give his spill. He's like, dad, I'm sorry I did this. And his dad's like, yeah, cool. He gives him the family ring. And he's like, cut up the, the fattened calf and turn it to brisket. We're throwing a party. <laughs> My son's back, right? He's, he's excited, right? Scripture. <laughs> Biblical imagination with me, right? I imagine this son, right? He's, he's wrapped in the father's robe. He's wearing the ring. They're about to eat the best brisket they ever had. And he walks in his room and he's stunned by this encounter he just had with the father. And he's like, I barely thought I was gonna be able to come back to the fields, let alone, I got, I got the family robe on, the ring. And, and I imagine what he might do because he's wearing this robe covered in you know, the pig slop clothes from his journey. Like maybe he takes those clothes off and he puts on some fresh clothes puts the robe back on and gets ready for dinner, right? He's already received the father's robe. He takes off the dirty ones, not so that he could be received because he's been received, right? And then maybe he goes and he finds his mother and he's like, mom, I'm sorry for what I put you and dad through and the family, I was, that was dishonorable. And, I, and she's like, son, we are just so glad that you came home. And she gives him the same grace and the same mercy that the father did, right? Uh, he comes to the mother and repents, not so that he could gain acceptance. He's already been accepted, but now he's just acting in according to what's already been made true. Yeah. And then maybe he, they go to dinner and he's, you know, he's journeyed a long way. So he's hungry. So he's shoveling down the brisket and his brother is looking with judgment. And he's like, why are you eating like you're still with the pigs? See, dad, I told you he ain't changed. He the same, same dude he was before he left. Could I imagine how that story might play in his head? Like maybe I am, maybe I haven't changed that much. It's only been a couple days. We just got back from camp. Like, is all of that, is, this, is that real? Or like, was all the stuff before that real? Am I like, that voice plays in his head. And maybe he tries to defend it before he even speaks. The father speaks on his behalf. Leave your brother alone. We didn't welcome him back because he was perfect. We brought him back because he's my son. And as long as he's my son, he has a place in my house. And the father's words. The father's words, what the father has said to be true about him, silences the lies. Maybe us being reminded of what the father says, rehearsing the gospel, the simple truth of the gospel, has power enough, has power enough to begin to cleanse us of the things that we need to take off. Not so that we can be accepted, but because we've been accepted. Paul closes out this passage. Interestingly, it seems like he makes a turn. He says, here in Christ. That, that literal word is here, but your ESV will translate it 
to the implication, which is in Christ. And he says, in this new place, in this household that you've been brought in because of Christ, he says, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian and Sith. All of that, that's not here. All there is here is Christ. He's in all and he is all. You see, to the Jews, the Greeks were not included because they weren't the people of promise. And circumcision was this thing that marked like covenant, uh, covenant commitment, right? That you were, you, that was the ultimate display of sacrifice and fidelity to God for his people. The barbarians and the Scythians, those were the most uncivilized and unrefined groups to the Greeks who were, you know, the more refined. And the slaves obviously were of less esteem and power as those who were free. And Paul says all of that is leveled in Christ. It is of no esteem. As one theologian, Douglas Moo, says, he says, in Christ, these distinctions are not abolished, but relativized. What does he mean by that? I mean, bring it to our, our home, right? Rather, you are white, black, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, young, old, you know, from the country, from the city, whatever kind of distinctions the world wants to put on it. In Christ, the beauty of our uniqueness that belongs to him is invited with us to the table. All of the baggage that the world has added that only hurts and destroys is left at the door. Those things that, that we are told that we have to embody that aren't in accordance to Christ in order to belong to any tribe are left at the door. What remains is a perfect unity from people of all tribes and all tongues and all walks of life who share one thing in common, that Christ is all and that Christ is in all. And so no longer do we have to define ourselves by what we say or what others say, but we don't define each other by what we say or what others say. What defines us, what defines our unity is that we are all found in Christ and that we belong to him and that he is in all and is all. So maybe the, the practical takeaway for us this morning is that as we get ready to uh, re rehearse our catechism as we've done every week, maybe you, maybe you write this down. Maybe you try to memorize it. And maybe you just rehearse this truth to yourself every morning when you wake up and every night before you go to sleep. That you will remind yourself of these truths and that it would serve as a kind of shorthand, not just for what we've heard today, but what we hear throughout this entire series. Um, it will remind us of what the Father says to be true about us. So I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to ask the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And we will respond together by saying that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only comfort in life and death? I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Father God, what a blessing it is that what is most true about us is what you say to be true about us. And Lord God, though we are but criminals wearing the king's clothes, Lord, we wear them rightly because you took our filthy rags and you hung them on a cross that we no longer have to be uh, bound to those things, that we no longer have to be defined by those things. But rather, because of who you are and what you've done, we get newness 
of life and we have freedom to walk in them. Free of bondage. Free of expectations of others. Free of expectations of ourselves. Lord God, and that we're able to move about in this new family that you've brought us into with freedom to be who you've always called us to be in Christ. Lord God, will we continue to trust in you and what you've accomplished, not our own works, but Christ's works on our behalf. See your son Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.